Alan Kelly. Didn't she do well this morning? Uh, hey man, thank you so much, George. George of the jungle. Hey. Good morning, family. I greet you with Jesus' joy. It is such a privilege to be in the presence of the Lord. And uh, isn't God good? And all the time. Amen. I just want to take a moment to appreciate the Reba team and just commend you on the great work you're doing. Uh, we are a small family, but you'll be surprised how much work goes into just keeping the system going. <laughs> and uh, nothing will be, would have been possible if it wasn't for your help. But I want to remind you that what you do, you don't do for me, you don't do for the church, you do unto the Lord. Amen. Amen. And the Bible says uh, that he is not unfaithful yeah. to forget your love and labor. Yeah. Amen. And I also want to take this moment to appreciate my lovely wife. Amen. You are doing such a great job. Amen. It's not easy dealing with me, family. Um, I might sound like a you know, lovable, innocent, uh, you know, young preacher of the gospel, but uh, I have a wife that is keeping me cello taped together. <laughs> And so I just appreciate you, everything you do in our home, our family, in the church. Um, God really favored me when he sent you my way. Amen. 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 I like it when preachers do that, don't you? <laughs> and sometimes if you read between the lines, you know they are very strategic. Yeah. <laughs> Amen. Family, you know, you know what a privilege it is to share the word of God because um, I understand fully that I am undeserving to be standing here. Not qualified, but I understand this beautiful truth about God is that he does not call the equipped. He equips the cold. And so I'm just like that bumblebee, you know, according to the laws of aerodynamics, that bumblebee should not be flying. But here I am. Turn with me to Ezra 6. We can do a bit of Bible reading today. And I know uh, the church in general and at large is used to shouting and clapping during a sermon. But will it be okay if we did a bit of reading this morning? Is that okay? Yes. Is that okay with you? It's fine by me. And I'm sure it's fine by you. Keep your finger and your crayon at chapter 6. And I'm just going to quickly run you by a summary of where we were last week. Last week I showed you no mercy with respect to time, so I'm going to try and be a little bit more sensitive this morning. Okay? My wife is going to be my timekeeper. Uh, please, babe, uh, just be faithful to the task. And uh, if anything goes wrong, if the train loses brakes, you know who to blame. Okay. So quickly to recap and review last week, um, we dealt with the chapters of Ezra between chapter 1 and 3. 
and we noted that the author according to church tradition of the book of Ezra is Ezra himself the book was written between 440 BC and 300 BC uh, but the events of Ezra transpired around 538 BC the year prior to that history tells us that King Cyrus of Persia overthrew Babylon at what is known to be the Battle of Opus. The Greek historian Herodotus told us that this beautiful city of Babylon stood on a plain broad field and it was exactly square. It measured 185 meters by 400 that is, in Greek metric, 480 stadia. And while such is its size, it was a magnificent, beautiful city. In fact, it was one of the seven wonders of the world. Surrounding the city of Babylon was a broad, deep moat. In other words, a huge ditch that surrounded the city and it was filled with water. And together with its impregnable walls, it seemed impossible to break into that fortress of Babylon. But the king of Persia, Cyrus, with his military uh, intelligence, had managed to dig a trench out from the river Euphrates that supply the water surrounding the city of Babylon and he diverted the water so that from measuring over two people high it shrunk down to ankle deep and his army made its way before the fortress of Babylon and history tells us that there was basically no fight when they conquered Babylon they even lowered the walls for him and if you read Daniel chapter 5, if you remember our Daniel series, you remember that it was on that night when Belshazzar took the vessels of the house of God and drank and had a debauched time of, of celebration and, and, and there was just orgies and drunkenness. And on that night, God judged him and a hand came and wrote on the wall, Tiki Tiki Menel Abhasen which was translated by Daniel, your days have been numbered and you've been found wanting, and this day your, the kingdom is removed from you. And on that night, that same night, the king of Persia overthrew Babylon. And so the basic storyline of the book of Ezra is that Ezra records the release and return of the remnant of Jews that once were in captivity in Babylon, and had now made their way back to their home city, Jerusalem, to rebuild the house of God and its city. We say the structure of the book of Ezra can be divided into two main sections, chapters 1 to 6, which tells the story and records the story of the return from exile in Babylon following the decree of Cyrus in 538 B.C., and records the number of people that returned back to Jerusalem. The second half of Ezra 
is between chapter 7 to 10, which tells the story of Ezra and his ministry to the people of God and how God used Ezra to bring reformation and change to how the people worship God. And so it's not enough to worship the right God. You have to worship the right God in the right way. And it's not until chapter 7 that Ezra is introduced into the narrative. And so these two main sections fall into two different periods of time. The first section, 1 to 6, is a period of 20 years. The second section is a period of about 100 years from chapter 7 to 10. Remember last week we spoke about how we interpret Old Testament narrative. There's such a thing called time and space. And so the genre of the book of Ezra falls into a category known as Old Testament narratives. Old Testament narratives are not mere stories. It is not just a simple retelling of historical events. According to Stuart and Fee, Old Testament narratives are purposeful stories retelling the historical events of the past to give meaning and direction to those who are in the present and to the generations to come and we explained last week that there are three flaws to interpreting old testament narratives three three tiers of old testament uh, interpretation firstly you get the bottom floor That's where we find individual narratives and and storylines and principles that we can relate and apply to our own personal lives. That's where we find personal application. And then you get the middle floor of interpretation. That's where we begin to see the narrative of how God redeems a chosen people for his namesake, the people and nation of Israel. And then you have a top floor. It's the penthouse floor of interpretation. Where the middle ground dealt with the nation of Israel, the top floor deals with the meta-narrative of scripture, the overarching theme and agenda of scripture. And it's the middle floor, the lift on the middle floor that takes us to the top floor and that lift is called redemptive history and we spoke about redemptive history last week and so the top floor narrative of scripture deals with how God unfolds his plan to redeem mankind Christ through Jesus Christ that's the overarching theme of scripture in fact there are two uh, uh, two themes when we arrive to the top floor first it's redemptive history (coughs) we see how god progressively deals with the nation of israel throughout history and this forms part of his plan leading to the redemption of all mankind and we see how god sets the stage for his son to appear on the world stage through the people and nation of Israel. It was McClellan that stated that redemptive history is simply the history of redemption, the historical progression of events through the Jewish nation 
and we see how God sovereignly decreed and providentially directed events leading to the final redemption of all creation. And Paul put it this way in Galatians 4, he says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. The second aspect to the top floor or feature of the top floor of interpretation is that when we read Old Testament narratives, we must see Jesus in the text. We must see Jesus, you know, like those lawyers of, of, of the Torah and scribes that came to his disciples and said, would we see Jesus, please? We must be able to look for Jesus in the Old Testament narrative of Scripture. Because Jesus said in John 5, when he rebuked the Pharisees, he says, you search the Scriptures, supposing in them you'll find eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. The book of Revelation states that the spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. And so we must be able to see that in Scripture, Jesus is either patterned, he's either prefigured, promised, or present, or he's proclaimed. We must learn to look for Jesus in the text. We also noted that the redemptive picture in Israel that we see is seen in the fact that the Hebrews refer to the book of Ezra as the second exodus. Yeah. And so for a long time, the Hebrews have referred to Ezra as the second exodus. That's, and, they've sh and last week we saw how the return of the Jews from Babylon to Jerusalem is depicted with how Israel made its exodus from Egypt to the Promised Land. That event took place 908 years earlier, the first exodus. 908 years later, the second exodus occurs. And we drew a parallel between the two events. And we said that it was God who said, I have hardened Pharaoh's heart. And now Ezra opens up and tells us that it was God who stirred Cyrus's spirit. The Israelites were allowed to leave Egypt by Pharaoh for the main purpose that they may worship the Lord. And we saw that Cyrus allows the Israelites to leave Babylon that they may also worship the Lord in the rebuilding of the temple. We saw that when Pharaoh allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt, he allowed him to leave with silver and gold and with the wealth of Egypt. And then in the book of Ezra, we see that Cyrus allows the Jews to leave fully funded from the treasury of Persia. And all the remaining Jews would support the work. And so, so to summarize the events of, of, of last week's message, we see that there are three returns to Jerusalem, like there were three deportations from Jerusalem initially to Babylon. The first return to Jerusalem was under Zerubbabel, who was a governor of Judah, and he first led 50,000 people uh, from Babylon to Jerusalem and undertook in rebuilding the temple 
of God and the house of God. And that period took about, about a period of 20 years. The second return we see under Ezra, who was a priest and a scribe, and 2,000 people returned with him. And Ezra was known for teaching the law and for bringing transformation in the Jewish nation. And the third return we see in the book of Nehemiah, but this time he takes a small company of people. Nehemiah was, was no priest, he was no, uh, no, no scribe, he was no governor, he was an ordinary layman, a cupbearer, an ordinary layman showing us that God can use anybody irrespective of your title or position. And eventually he became a governor of Persia and he led a small group of exiles back to Jerusalem and he rebuilds the walls of Jerusalem. And so between Ezra and Nehemiah, we shared last week that, Ez, that Esther came uh, into the narrative between the rebuilding of the walls, uh, rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem and between the rebuilding of the walls we have the events that took place in, in Persia around the life and story of Esther. So around 15, uh, 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt. Then about 30 years later, around 478 BC, we have the events that take place in Esther. And how God uses uh, Esther, a beautiful young damsel lady, uh, who God used her looks because if she, she was, you know, a bit, you know, I mean, choose my words, <laughs> if she wasn't so pretty looking, I'm sure the king of Persia, Xerxes, wouldn't have given her a second look. And the Jews would have died. It would have been genocide. God can use anything. He'll use a cockroach if he has. <laughs> and then in 445 BC, the walls of Jerusalem are rebuilt under Nehemiah. So you have the events of Esther, uh, uh, the events of Ezra, Esther, and Nehemiah. So if you're going to pick up and read the book of, of Ezra, I had a, a brother tell me in the week, uh, he's reading the book of Ezra, I said, uh, you're reading it wrong. Because if you're going to read the book of Ezra, you have to read a little bit of Daniel. You have to read Nehemiah. You have to read Esther. You have to read Haggai and Zechariah because those entire uh, minor prophet books are prophets who ministered during this time and their entire prophecies relate to what took place in Ezra. And so don't think you're just going to read uh, Esther. You know? The Bible is rigged. <laughs> Amen. Let's pray. Father, I am not enough unless you come. Commit, commit this, this young preacher today at this place. Let him who has an ear to hear, hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Amen. 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 So we're going to take a non-linear approach um, to preaching and storytelling this morning um, in in filmmaking, they refer to it as reverse chronology. That's where the plot of the movie is revealed at the opening scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? 
and then the rest of the story is told in flashback. A good example of this is when I watched the first uh, movie of the franchise of John Wick. You remember John Wick? Mm -hmm. Not the song. And nobody be beating to the song. <laughs> okay, tell me. So, John Wick opens up with the penultimate scene where John Wick has defeated the last boss, the main antagonist is bleeding, and then the movie is flashback to the to the beginning of the events. So let's start in chapter 6. We're going to try and take it uh, back to when uh, the rebuilding of the temple occurred. Chapter 6, verse 14 to 22. Chapter 6, verse 14 to 22. And the Bible reads um, as follows. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet, and Zechariah the son of Idu. And they built and finished it, according to the commandment of God of Israel, and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, his king of Persia. Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this, this house of God with joy. And they offered sacrifices at the dedication of this house of God, 100 bulls, uh, 200 rams, uh, 400 lambs, uh, and it sounds like my Lobola negotiation entry prices here. <laughs> yeah, with these five girls. And let's pick up. And as a sin offering for all Israel, 12 male goats, according to the number of the tribes of Israel, they assigned the priests to their division and the Levites to their division over the service of God in Jerusalem, as it is written in the book of Moses. Okay, so the temple is rebuilt, it's completed, sacrifices are made, they've done it with great joy. They dedicated the house of God, and then we reach the climax and crescendo of the narrative from verse 19. Let's read. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the first month. This is the first time the Passover was celebrated since they've been taken captive by Babylon. For the priests and the Levites had purified themselves. All of them were richly clean, and they slaughtered the Passover lambs for all the descendants of the captivity, for their brethren, the priests, and for themselves. Then the children of Israel, who had returned from the captivity, ate together with all who had separated themselves from the filth of the nations of the land in order to seek the Lord God of Israel. And they kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy. This theme of joy just keeps on popping up uh, in doing the work of the Lord. Yes. For the Lord made them joyful. Oh my God, there we go again. And turned the, hearts, uh, the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Amen. So when we turn and look back at the time when the construction on the house of God began, I want you to turn to chapter 3 verse 2 for me. 
chapter 3, verse 2. Just a few pages back. I'm getting too many pages, family. <laughs> Don't find yourself in Genesis now, okay? Okay, Ezra chapter 3, verse 2 states, Then Jeshua, the son of Josedach, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, and his brethren, arose and built the altar of God of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. So the very first uh, project, the, the, the very first thing they started with, in rebuilding the house of God was not the foundation it was the altar why would they start rebuilding the altar first why not lay down the foundation of the temple first well mainly for two two reasons firstly whenever Abraham or the patriarchs you know Isaac and Jacob whenever they would come into a new territory uh, the first thing they would do was to mark the territory by establishing and building an altar. An altar was a place that consecrated the land to God. It was also the place where the ordinary man could meet with God. The temple was more structured and not everybody could just enter the temple. It was mainly the priests that could enter the temple, but the altar was available for every ordinary man and woman to meet with God. The altar was a place where God had initially made a covenant with Abraham in chapter 22. And so when the Israelites rebuild this altar, in effect they are recalling the sentiments of God's promise to Abraham. Where God promised Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12, now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. So when they rebuilt the altar, they were invoking the promises of Abraham. Whenever you make strategic moves or go through certain shifts in life, it's always important that we learn to invoke the promises of God. Whatever you're trusting for, you invoke the promises of God. And the second reason why they rebuilt the altar first was that they understood the spiritual implications of it. In other words, they could resume with burnt offerings and sacrifices while the temple was still being constructed. Because it would take a while to construct the temple, but while the temple was still being structured, they could make atonement for their sins. So the altar we see is a place that they knew they could deal with the issue of sin where sin was dealt with, and it was Guzik that stated, and I quote, fundamentally, the altar was where sin was dealt with and where the common man met with God and where they started with the altar because it was a wise spiritual priority showing they understood their need to have atonement from sin and acts of dedication to God, unquote. Kidna stated, and I quote, the altar allowed there to be continual atonement for the sins of the nation 
while they were building God a house. There could be no success or no temple building without an altar. The altar represented forgiveness of the past and the renewed sense of consecration for the future. Unquote. The Israelites understood that if they are going to do anything significant for God, if they're going to build the kingdom of God, they must deal with the issue of sin. And that applies to us today. If we are going to accomplish anything for God, we must learn to put aside those sins and habits that so easily beset us. And church history and world history will tell you that there have been many on the front lines of the church. Many who have done such a great work for the kingdom of God. And they failed to deal with their secret sins. They failed to deal with unconfessed sins. And they became metaphors on the mouths of Christians and unbelievers. And adjectives for those who have fallen from the proverbial saying, who have fallen from grace. But in effect, no one can really fall from the grace of God. That's why as a child of God, as a woman of God, as a man of God, we have to learn to deal with our habits. We have to learn to deal with those unauthorized desires, illicit desires that we entertain in our lives. James put it this way. He said, each one is tempted when he is drawn aside by his own desires and enticed. And when desire has been fully conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when full grown, brings forth death. We have to learn to deal with our habits. We have to learn to conquer our habits. Because what the enemy does is, he allows you to build. He allows you to build. He allows you to do great things. And he knows the higher you go, the higher you fall from. And so if you don't deal with your, with your habits and your sin and those desires that, that we've been entertaining for so long, one day when it matters the most, it will explode. And so John states, my little children, these things are right to you that you sin not. And if any man sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ the righteous and he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the world we have a place we have we have a way of dealing with sin and that is through confessing our sins to Jesus Christ amen, amen. and so they knew the importance of dealing with sin, they knew the importance of rebuilding the altar first. But yes, what's the interesting thing? If you read in verse 3, verse 3 states that they set the altar on its basis and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord both morning and evening. What's interesting about this is that when they rebuilt the altar, they rebuilt it on its original foundation. They placed it back on its initial base. So they found the old foundations of the way the previous altar was 
and they erected a new one on the old base. Now the old base dates right back to 2 Samuel chapter 24 when, da when David built an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna. And if we call to mind the story of David and Aruna, a plague broke out and David approached Aruna for a threshing floor for the altar. And so he wants to purchase the threshing floor from Aruna and Aruna refuses. He says, no, my Lord, how can I charge you for a threshing floor? You can have anything you want, oxen, bulls, yokes for wood. You can have the threshing floor sledges. Take whatever you want without a cost. But the scripture says, David refused. And the king replied to Aruna, no, I insist on paying for it. Because I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. And I see many, many people today. We've been building many altars, but not on this ancient foundation. We want worship without sacrifice. We want to worship God at our own convenience. We want to serve God on our own terms. Rebuild your altar on this ancient foundation that you will not offer anything to the Lord in worship with that which costs you nothing because it's costly to worship. It's costly to get up and serve God when you know you could be sleeping in your bed in this winter season <laughs> and watching me say tingle. <laughs> it's costly to serve God and to carry your cross and to die to self and to die to your opinions and to die to yourself. It's costly to worship God and sometimes you see it when you're trying to bring correction amongst believers is that believers cannot be corrected anymore because we justify our sins we justify our lifestyles and when we confronted with the truth of God's Word we refuse to change When was it ever convenient to serve God? He said, if you want to follow me, take first, deny yourself. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And so they rebuilt the ancient altars. They rebuilt the altar on the ancient foundation. And in chapter 3, verse 10 to 13, we read that they began with the foundation and it reads as follows when the boulders from verse 10 chapter 3 when the boulders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord the priests stood in the apparel with trumpets and the Levites the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of King David of Israel and they sang responsively 
they were praising and they were giving thanks to the Lord and they sung, for he is good and his mercy endures forever towards Israel. Then all the people shouted with, with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Verse 12, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers' houses and old men who had seen the first temple of Solomon wept with a loud voice when, when the foundation of the temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many still shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard from afar off. Now let's pay attention to this scene between verses 11 uh, to 13. We have the generation that lays down the foundation, and they are ecstatic, they are excited, you know. Uh, they, they, they cry with loud shouts of joy, they're making music and melody. It is a time of great anticipation the house of God is coming up the foundations have been laid they are just anticipating what God is about to do and then you have an older generation who's weeping and mourning when the foundation you you have two generations young and old you have two emotional responses one generation weeping another rejoicing and then you have two perspectives. Yeah. There's a lot to say here, family. And I'm going to resist the temptation. But one thing I will add is that a lot of scholars debate why the older men were, were weeping. It was a time of, of rejoicing. But Haggai chapter 2 shed some light on why they were weeping. Turn with me to Haggai chapter 2. <coughs> Haggai chapter 2, and I'll read from, from verses 2. <coughs> when you there, give me an amen. amen. Uh, the, the fire is just warm here in the front. When you there, give me an amen. 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 Okay, let's read. In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? In other words, when the older generation looked at this foundation being laid, they said, this, this glory does not compare to the glory of the temple of Solomon with all its splendor. And note the following words of the prophets. Yet now be strong, Zerubbabel, says the Lord. And be strong, Joshua, the son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. And be strong, all you people of the land, says the Lord. And work, for I am with you. You'll see that reading from verse 3, we can gather that the older generation who wept, 
they had lived in the time of Solomon's temple and they remembered the glory of the first temple and they compared it to the glory of the present and to the foundations that were laid. And we can gather from the writings and prophecies of Haggai that the Lord rebuked the older generation. And here's where I want to bring a point of application is that we all we all guilty of this but there's a dark side to nostalgia yeah. that we don't talk about oftentimes when I look back over my life and my time in the Lord I am tempted to look back and oftentimes I'm guilty of it I look back and I say that was a better time these youngsters today, they don't know what it was like when the Holy Ghost fell. They don't know what it was like to sing those songs of Ron Connolly and Alvin Slaughter. <laughs> this generation knows nothing about nothing. Oh, someone pulled out Jimmy Swaggart. <laughs> Back in the day, those days were better. When church was still church and there were no lights and disco lights in the church and no drums and cymbals and the, the organ just played, the room, the organ just played and the choir sang. Those were the glory days and the glory today. These youngsters, they know nothing about church. They know nothing about God. And so as, as someone looking back on life, it's easier to see the good. We, we often forget the bad that took place, you know. And so often we become critical and judgmental. Because what we see now doesn't fit with what we experienced in our past. And what happens to us generally is that we refuse to engage this generation. We, we refuse to engage this move of God because it doesn't look like what we were used to. And what we experience. Nostalgia is described, according to Miriam Webster, as believing that nothing will compare to the experiences we previously had. We have to learn to appreciate what God is doing now, what God is doing today. But what we can take out of chapter 3 of Ezra is this. You have the younger generation praising, excited, full of joy, making noise. You have the, the older generation, you know, critical of what, of, what, of what God is doing. And they're emotional when they look back at the former glory and they're weeping. So that you couldn't tell whether they were crying or shouting for joy. But one thing you can take away from that, that experience is that these people were passionate about the work of God. They were passionate about building God a house. They were passionate about building the kingdom of God. You cannot love God and not yeah. be passionate about his work. 
there is an inextricable relationship between loving God and doing the work of God. Because to know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to serve Him. And you know how many times I came up upon that, that church streaming Christian who said, ah, I love God, man. I just sit at home. I don't need to go to challenge engage church. I don't need to do the work of God. I'm loving God. I just download uh, Brother Joel Osteen or Stephen Furtick. And I'm, I'm having I can praise God all by myself. I'm, I'm still serving the Lord. You cannot separate a love for God and a desire to do His work. Lord, baptize us with a passion for your work. It was said of Jesus that the zeal of his father's house ate him up. And so the Israelites were experiencing a time of great favor. They were experiencing the kiss of God in undertaking of God's work. God had stirred a heathen king's heart to make a decree and proclamation releasing the Jews from Babylon in captivity to their beloved Jerusalem. God had stirred the hearts of this king to fund and rebuild the temple from the treasury of Persia. The remaining Jews were eager to fund the work. They were going back home. They were excited and anticipating what God was doing. They were not short of resources. They were not short of human resources and labor and support and finances. They had everything they needed to get the job done. They had the prophetic words of Jeremiah and Isaiah that were fulfilled. They were walking in the fulfillment of God's prophetic promises. And they came together collectively, the Bible says in verse 1 of chapter 3, they came together as one man, as one man with one mind to do something great for God. They were passionate about building God a house in a time of favor. And it was a time of favor for them. But chapter 4 states, that when they started building the house of God, they were met with opposition. And verse 4 reads in chapter 4, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the descendants of the captivity were building the temple of the Lord God of Israel, they came to Zerubbabel and the heads of the father's houses and said to them, Let us build with you. Be careful of those, those people yeah. that have an agenda and they come alongside like they're supporting you. He says, let us come and build with you for we seek your God as you do and we have sacrificed to him since the days of Ezardan, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua were discerning. They were no fools. And the rest of the heads of the father's houses of Israel said to them, you may do nothing with us to build a house for our God. They understood the power of no. But we 
alone will bow to the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in the building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. That is a period of 16 years that the work came to an halt. From the time of Cyrus to the time of Darius is a period of 16 years that nothing was built further than the foundation that was laid. And one universal truth remains and that I've come to experience personally over the years that God's work will always be met with opposition. The moment you set out to do anything for God is the moment that all hell breaks loose. In fact, Jesus said the kingdom of God suffers violence. In fact, Paul said those who will live godly in Christ must, not maybe, must suffer persecution. The work of God will be met with opposition. And here's the strange thing. And we forget this as Christians. And we act surprised when there's persecution. And we act surprised when there's naysayers and, and there's criticism and there's, and there's people who judge us for serving God and wanting to build God a house. But what, one thing we got to take into account here is that these Israelites had the blessing of God. They had the favor of God. They had the prophetic word fulfilled. They had all the resources, all the manpower, and yet they were still met with opposition. You can have God's blessing on God's work and still have a difficulty doing God's work. And we think just because God promised it, it must be easy. Sometimes God will open the door of employment and you will get the job by the favor of God. But when it comes down to doing the work, you just keep on bumping into people and bumping into opposition and it never becomes easy. But when you get down to doing God's work, expect opposition. And so chapter 4, verse 4 states that they troubled them in the building and hired counsels against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of king of, of Persia and Darius the king of Persia. Period of 16 years, the word of God came to a halt. Now the next question is, why was the work of God halted for 16 years? What caused the work of God to come to an abrupt end? 
verses 4 to 5. Then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah. They were frustrated. They, they gave in to fear. But basically, in a nutshell, they were discouraged. Discouragement was the tool used to halt the work of God. Yomachi states, and I quote, that the term discourage literally means in Hebrew to weaken the hands. Discouragement comes to weaken your hands and to stifle the work of God. So I want to ask you a question here today. What is hindering you from doing what God called you to do? What is preventing us from serving God and building His kingdom? Have we found ourselves in a similar position of discouragement that the Israelites found themselves in? Have we allowed discouragement to prevent us from sharing our faith? Have we allowed discouragement to steal the song of praise from our lips? Have we allowed discouragement to prevent us from pursuing the call of God on our lives? Discouragement comes in many forms. And there are many reasons why discouragement settles in. And I won't be able to cover all of them, but here's just a few, a few causes of discouragement in the house of God. Firstly, frustration. Frustration. We become so weighted down when we don't see progress or growth that we feel like we're wasting our time. And sometimes it also becomes frustrating when you have to work with people. And I always wish I had a job where I didn't work with people. You know? And then uh, as a believer and you come into the church, you think it's, it's, it's going to be different. But no. Working with people in the, oh, in, in the church it can be just as difficult. Yeah. But I always use the example of Noah's Ark. You know Noah's Ark? The church is like the Ark. There are animals pooping everywhere. <laughs> it stinks in the Ark. It's stinky to be in the Ark sometimes. You can imagine what elephant poop looks like on the Ark. But I'd rather be in a stinky ark in a dying, drowning world. On, I'm not saying you mustn't change your ways in church. Change, beloved, change. <laughs> Please, change. Please, that's a belief. Oh. Embrace change. And so we get frustrated in the house of God because we don't grow, uh, we, we don't get to, to improve and grow our skills. And sometimes, we just get frustrated with people in general. Okay, second cause for uh, discouragement is fear. Sometimes we are genuinely afraid of what commitment looks like. Yeah. Mm. To commit to the house of the Lord, to commit to God. To commit to God comes at a cost because worship is not cheap. Mm. Commitment to God, family, can be scary, especially when you are in a marriage. Imagine the Lord tells me, uh, son, sell your house. 
You may have a hard time when I have convincing Zoe. <laughs> but coming and serving God sometimes creates, you know, when we think of the commitment involved, because most of us have been committed to church over the years, and sometimes leadership had unrealistic demands of you. And so you don't want to find yourself in that position again. And so, and so you develop this fear. Thirdly, failure can be a cause of discouragement. Sometimes we've had experiences in the past where we failed, where we felt humiliated, uh, whether we stumbled in our walk with God, we fell into sin. Uh, you know, we, we had a moment of failure. And we allowed failure to cast a shadow on our relationship with God and how we commit to Him. And so we, we justify the position we are in with our faith. And we say, no, when the time comes. One of the reasons I've noticed over the years, and it's a strong point that's been a cause for a lot of discouragement, is sometimes people generally have false expectations when they come into the kingdom of God. Sometimes we think if we serve God, everything will be all right. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh. Family, it's, yeah, it's not Bob Marley's song, guys, as Brother George is saying here. Yeah. But sometimes when you commit to God, your circumstances don't improve immediately. For some cases, it gets worse. Because I've seen with Muslim friends, when they convert, the whole world and family stands against them. Some people lose their jobs. Some people lose their relationships, their closest friends, when they commit to it. So when you come into the kingdom of God and when you commit to God, understand this. Don't have false expectations. It's not going to be all rosy. And lastly, sometimes the cause for discouragement is that old sneaky devil called fatigue. <laughs> You're doing God's work, you have a full-time job, you have a family, five kids running around. I'm not speaking about me, this is just a <laughs> hypothetical example. You have the pressures of life, pressures of money, the pressures of making things work. And it becomes training. It becomes training. And so we saw this in the case of Elijah. Elijah causes, calls fire down from heaven among Carmel. You know, the whole nation turns back to God. Uh, he, fa he faces almost 950 prophets of Baal and Asherah. He comes down from that moment of victory, that high place of victory, and he comes down the, the mountain and he's in the valley. And Jezebel, one woman, one controlling demonic woman, sends a letter and says, By this time tomorrow I will have your head. And Elijah goes into a pity party. And where does it go wrong with Elijah? He was fatigued. And training. Sometimes when we are exhausted, our gods are let down. And we become vulnerable to sin and temptation and discouragement. Okay, let's move along quickly. Let's speed boat. Okay, so in chapter 4 of Ezra, we have a parenthesis, a digression. 
I'm not going to go into it, but it relates to the time of Nehemiah when he faced opposition uh, to the building of both the city and the walls of Jerusalem. So when you're reading chapter 4, you will find the persecution and discouragement that the Israelites faced in rebuilding the temple. And in it quickly from verse 6, it moves into the time of, of, of King Artaxerxes and in the time when Nehemiah was built the, the temple. So don't read it as one sequence of events. Those are two separate time frames. Remember we spoke about time and space last week. Yeah. And remember we, we mentioned last week that Ezra is not arranged chronologically. It's arranged theologically. And it's the reason why he inserts that parenthesis, parenthesis there is because he wants to give you a feel of the opposition that they faced, that it was constant and unending. In chapter 5, we see the work of the temple resume. What was the reason that the work resumed on the temple after 15, 16 years? What was the cause for the project igniting again and restarting again? In chapter 5, verse, verses 5, we read this. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Edo, the prophets, prophesied to the Jews who were in Judah and in Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was, with, was over them. And so Zerubbabel, the son of Shaltiel, uh, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, rose up and began to build the house of God which was in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. So we see these two prophets these two prophets of encouragement come and provoke uh, the nation of Israel again. And we'll read in Haggai chapter 1. I'll read it for you. You can just mark it. Haggai chapter 1. Uh, God gives Haggai a prophetic word to rebuke the house of Israel. He says in verse 1, chapter 1, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, <coughs> saying, This people says, The time has not come. The time uh, has not come to build the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your panel houses? And my temple lie in ruins. Now thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You've sown much and you've brought in little. You eat and do not have. You drink but are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but you're not warm. And you've earned your wages and, and your wages have been put into a bag with holes. Now consider your ways. Go up to the mountain, bring the wood and build the temple. In other words, you've been con so concerning with your own well-being. What about the house of God? You've looked for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Says the Lord of hosts. Because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew. And the earth withholds its fruit. For I called a drought on the land and on the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and on the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. In other words, I dried it all up because you were too self-absorbed and you forgot about seeking first the kingdom. Then we read in Zechariah, his prophecy to Zerubbabel. <coughs> in chapter 4, Zechariah chapter 4, make a note of it. You can listen to the recording afterwards. 
So the Lord said to Zechariah, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. In other words, prophesy this to Zerubbabel while the house is in ruins. He says, prophesy the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain, you shall be level. And he shall bring forth the capstone, you know, the cornerstone, with shouts of grace, 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 grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, Haggai, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and the hands of Zerubbabel will finish it. And when Zerubbabel hears his words, the Bible says in the book of Haggai chapter 1 that the spirit of Zerubbabel was stirred. And he got back to rebuilding the house of the Lord. And the Bible says that Israel prospered through the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah. And so the best solution for the discouragement they faced was the encouragement that came from the word of the Lord. That's how you face discouragement. You face discouragement by being encouraged from the word of God. You turn to the word of God. You meditate on the word of God. You study the word of God. You quote the word of God. You speak the word of God. You remember the promises of God. And now, I'll be concluding, my lovely wife, she's showing me at zero minutes. <coughs> but the Holy Spirit, babe, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> God, I'm just going to take, I'm just going to pop the car, can I just pop the car? <laughs> okay, in conclusion, in conclusion, family, it's a binding statement when you say in conclusion, okay. In conclusion, there's just two main thoughts I want to close off with, but from chapter 6. Okay, Pastor Clinty, chapter 7, chapter 10, you take us home next week. Okay, chapter 6, verses 14, I want to read for you. Okay, Ezra 6, verses 14. And the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet of Zechariah, the son of Edu, and they built... And they finished according to the commandment of Israel, according to the commandments of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month. This is where we started, you remember? Yeah. Verse 19. And the descendants of the captivity kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month. Okay? And we see the from the time when the construction began to the time it, com it was completed we see this scene that is a climactic scene in chapter 6 where the Israelites for the first time probably over, over close to 80 years begin to celebrate the Passover so the construction of the house of God reached its pinnacle in its celebration of the Passover. And what minister of God would I be 
if I don't show you Jesus in the text. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 states, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since truly you are unleavened, for indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. So the purpose behind and the agenda behind building the work of God was so that they could have a house of God and celebrate the Passover. And the Passover reminded the children of Israel of the exodus they had from Egypt over 400 years of bondage. Of how God delivered them by the blood of the Lamb. And when we come to the book of Ezra, we're reminded again of the Passover. Of how God stirred a heathen king's heart. And allowed them to go back to Jerusalem, their beloved Jerusalem. And celebrate the Passover. And that's the purpose as to why we build the house of God. That's the reason why we, we build the kingdom of God. That's why we want to do something for God. Is that we can celebrate the Passover. Christ, our Passover. He is the reason behind all our efforts. It's the reason for all our celebration. He is the reason for everything we do. And he's the reason why you were called. Amen. To celebrate him. Amen. Amen. Can we stand this morning?